Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Somewhere in Time from 1980 with my wonderful guest, Sarah Royce. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And this time around, we're watching the movie Somewhere in Time from 1980 with my wonderful guest, Sarah Royce. Sarah, it's so nice to have you here. Welcome. Hi. Somewhere in Time. How did you feel about it this time, Sarah? This movie is so wonderful. It's so romantic. Okay, so one of the reasons that I chose this film is this will be the very first film of our seventh season of Talk Classic to Me. So that's very exciting. This is our season seven premiere. And it will also be coming out the week before Valentine's Day. So I thought, oh, what a wonderful, romantic, beautiful film. Um, It's a gorgeous looking love story. It looks like Valentine's Day. There's red everywhere. Um, And then also I chose you to watch it with me because last year we watched this together at TCM Fest. And it was just like such a lovely experience. Um, And we had some really great questions after that I thought we could like recreate on this show. Um, So before we dive in. People at home, I will give you a plot synopsis of the film. There will be spoilers. So if you don't want to hear the spoilers, go watch the movie first, then come back. Okay, so plot synopsis. This movie, Somewhere in Time, um, stars Mr. Christopher Reeve. He is a playwright who we originally see in the 70s, like when he's graduating college, he's written this play and this older woman like comes from the audience and hands him a pocket watch and says, come back to me. And everybody's like, what? What just happened? We don't know. And so, you know, it's eight years later. This man is a playwright in Chicago. He's a successful playwright, but he's just had a breakup. He's feeling a little stuck. He's going to go on a road trip. So he's heading back to like where he went to college and he stops and he sees this place, the Grand Hotel, which by the way, we saw earlier, we saw that this older woman, that this is where she like lives, presumably, or this is where she goes after the show. I don't know if she lives there or not. But the Grand Hotel was meaningful to her. And now we see it's meaningful to him, too. So he goes there. He's like, I want a room. And they're like, "Okay." And so while he's there, (laughs) that was a really necessary plot point. I'm so glad I shared that part with you. Anyway, so he's there. And while he's waiting to go to dinner one night, he sees this like hall of history at the hotel. And he's like, "Okay, I'll check that out. And he sees this photograph from the early 1900s. He doesn't know who it is because there's no name plaque but he falls in love with this picture, just completely falls in love with it. And 
He, of course, goes to the library, as you do. Shout out to the library. That was awesome. He goes to the library to find out more about this person. He finds out that she's Elise McKenna, a famous actress. She lived a mostly secluded life. But when she was younger, she was quite vivacious. And you're like, okay. Oh, and while he's visiting, like, the author of her book, who was with her the night that she died, as played by Teresa Wright, who is, like, only in the movie for five seconds, but is fantastic, he finds this book on time travel. And it was supposedly Elise McKenna's favorite book. She read it all the time. And the hypothesis of the book is that you can time travel via self-hypnosis. If you put yourself in the right conditions in the past, you can time travel to the past in your brain. So he does. (laughs) He time travels to the past in his brain. Um, You know, there's a whole thing about it. Like, will it work? Ah, we don't know. And you're like really tense about it, but eventually it does work. And you're like, oh my God, it worked. So he's in the past and he meets Elise McKenna and they fall in love with each other because they can't help it because they're made for each other and they're destined for each other. And it's beautiful. But she has this manager as played by Christopher Plummer, who may or may not be a time traveler and or a psychic. And we're going to chat about that later, who is very controlling and who like knows what he wants for her career. And he doesn't want her to get sidetracked with love. So he kind of, you know, gets in the way of their romance. And um, don't worry, he doesn't succeed. Like they find a way back to each other. And um, after they like have sex and it's really like beautiful and wonderful, Uh, I would have said made love. I really hate when people say they made love, but you know what? They made love. It was tender and it was by candlelight and it was beautiful. Okay. So they have this like beautiful love scene. And then the next day they're joking and eating chicken. (laughs) And then he finds a penny in his pocket from 1979 and it breaks him out of his hypnosis because it's from the future. And it's super creepy because the camera like pulls back from Jane Seymour. She's going, Richard. And, And he ends up back in his own time in the 1970s. Well, it's late 1970s. It's 1979 and the movie came out in 1980. So he ends up back in his own time period and he is just brokenhearted. Basically, he dies of a broken heart and we see him from his point of view, like dying and hovering above his bed and like ascending to the white light and up there in wherever he is in his afterlife, um, whatever you want to call it. I'm not putting labels on it. He sees Jane Seymour in the most beautiful dress that she was wearing in the first time, the first scene where he saw her and he's wearing his like early 1900s clothes and they hold hands and they freeze frame and they're together forever in death. That's the film somewhere in time. Um, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so good. I know it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but you know what? It's a movie and it's delightful and it's beautiful. I mean, yeah, it is unabashedly romantic. Like there's no beating around the book. It, it's so romantic, but it's played so earnestly and it doesn't come across as cheesy or insincere or any of that stuff. It's a really well-made movie and the costumes are amazing and the cinematography. And of course, the the chemistry between Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve is off the hook. When we saw this film last year at TCM Fest. So also, I think that was your first time seeing the film last year, no. right? No, no, never mind. I'm wrong. But it had been a while, like a long time. I, I first saw the movie in 2012. Got it. Okay. I saw it as a teenager with my whole family when we stayed at a hotel for the night when I was like 14 or 15. We all watched it. It was like on TV randomly. We caught it at the beginning. We all watched it as a family. And the penny scene 
literally terrified me and my brother. We were like, that's a horror film. We're frightened now, but we we loved it. It was a great first viewing. That's neither here nor there. What was special about um, the TCM viewing that we saw last year was that Jane Seymour and Alicia Malone gave like an introductory interview before the film. And Jane Seymour dropped some truths on us that I'm going to share with you. So audience at home, the reason that her chemistry with Christopher Reeve was so good was because in real life, they were falling in love during the making of this film. Um, and what ended up happening was that she even points it out and you can see it in the movie and it's heartbreaking. There's a scene, the scene that I mentioned earlier, where they're like eating chicken after they made love. It's a really lovely scene. Like they're trying to get to know each other better and they're planning this future together. And it's the scene where he like disappears. And so it's this really important scene. And so right before the scene, um, Christopher Reeve, or right, I shouldn't say before the scene, right before the shoot that day, Christopher Reeve had an earlier call. So he had gotten there earlier on set. He pulled Jane Seymour aside and was like, okay, so my ex-girlfriend who like, you know, they had been broken up. He found out that she was pregnant. And that she was going to have a baby. And so that him and Jane Seymour like couldn't be together now. Um, and so she was, if you look at that scene, you can literally see the tears in her eyes. And she kept saying like, I'm supposed to be happy. My character is happy. You can't cry. You can't cry. And you can feel that from her performance that she was heartbroken that day. You could see it in her, in her tears and her eyes while she's supposed to be happy. But I think it adds to the scene personally, because <laughs> I think it gives it like, there's so many kind of premonitions in this film and things you can't explain. And so it makes sense to me that her character might feel a little bittersweet in this moment, like she might lose him. And so I don't know. I, I think it works. I think she does a great job. But um, some of the other things she told us that I can share with you are that, um, I mean, she talked about falling in love with Christopher Reeve, but she also talked about the fun they had on set. Um, she said it was the most fun she ever had making a film. She said her relationship with her co-star was the best she'd ever had on any film. She loved working with Christopher Plummer too. They had worked together on another film as well. Um, and she talked about like all the fun times they had on Mackinac Island. So this film was filmed on Mackinac Island in Michigan, which is where I am from. Um, and I've been to Mackinac Island and I can tell you listeners at home, it is stunning. That hotel, the whole front facade, the patio with the big columns, like... I want to live there. <laughs> it's it is stunning. So unbelievably gorgeous. I was looking it up on a map. So it's pronounced Mackinac. Yeah. So it looks like it's spelled Mackinac, people at home, but it's pronounced Mackinac. That's just how it's pronounced Mackinac. So don't say and Mackinac. It's an island in between the mitten part of Michigan and the upper peninsula, right? Yes. It's on Lake Huron um, and it's between the two. And so, yeah, you drive all the way north because I'm from around the Metro Detroit area. <laughs> you drive all the way north, like six hours to get to Mackinac City. And then if you're rich, you can stay in the Grand Hotel because that is an expensive, expensive hotel, which is also ironic because they have no air conditioning. So the whole allure of Mackinac Island um, is that there are no cars allowed. And it's like old timey, like you can only take horses or bicycles around the island. It is pristine. It is like not touched by this era. So that's why they wanted to film there. They actually were supposed to film in Coronado or they wanted to film in Coronado. That's what the original setting was supposed to be. But there were too many cars. It was too loud. So they chose Mackinac. Well, and also the Coronado Hotel, which is where he goes in the book, um, which I also read in 2012. He goes to the Coronado. They scouted it. Um, but the director felt that it had been too modernized. There were all these like antennas and like satellite dishes on the roof. And it was it was too modern. But also like this was only 
about 20 years after Some Like It Hot had come out. And Some Like It Hot, of course, also was filmed very famously at the Coronado. So I think the director felt that that association was still very strong in the audience's mind, that they're going to see this hotel and be like, oh, hey, that's where they filmed Some Like It Hot. You know, so they needed they needed a new vibe, a different look. Plus, you'd mentioned earlier, the Grand Hotel is so gorgeous and it has this really cinematic, like very long porch, this beautiful staircase. Um, so there's a lot visually that looks stunning there. Plus, in general, Mackinac Island is gorgeous. Like, the, the lake there is so blue. Everything is so vibrant. The colors that you see in real life are the colors that come across in this film, like the green of the grass, the trees, the blue of the lake. It's very stunning. And I think this film really captured it. What a great place to shoot, a place where they don't have cars and where horse-drawn carriages are a regular occurrence every day. I mean, yeah, <laughs> what could be better for your movie set in 1912? I assume that for like that one scene where he drives up in his little Fiat that they had to get special permission because he does drive a car on Mackinac. So I know that some people, like, I know that when, like, a vice president went there, they drove a car and people were like, ah, can you believe it? And I'm like, well, I bet it happens sometimes. And they have that airstrip there. So, like, they mentioned that you can fly into Mackinac, like, there's, like, a little airport. And then that was when um, Jane... Seymour talked about how her and Christopher Reeve would Christopher Reeve like hid his own airplane there and they would fly out on the weekends and stuff like they'd fly to Toronto for little getaways. Um, So I think that there are like allowances made for certain people and certain things. But I think in general, that's interesting. No cars, but planes. Okay. I mean, yeah. planes are a lot more <laughs> pollutive. True. I mean, we took a ferry in. That's what we did. So most people, because again, Grand the Grand Hotel to stay there, it's like a thousand dollars a night, and there's no air Ooh. conditioning. Yeah. So what you what like normal people like me and my family did is you just stay in Mackinac City and then take the ferry across and spend the day in Mackinac Island. By the way, they're famous for their fudge. It's absolutely delicious. And if you're from Michigan, every ice cream store has Mackinac Island fudge as a flavor. And then when you grow up and you leave Michigan, you're like, what? That's not a recognized flavor anywhere else. And it shocks you. That's Mackinac Island. Also, I'm so impressed with your mapping research of of my home. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. Oh, I also want to mention the other things Jane Seymour talked about before we move on. Um, Something that she had mentioned was we had talked about the music and she got her friend John Barry to do the music for free. Um, but the deal that he made was he would get uh, back end money for it. So he did the project for free, uh, but he got residuals once it came out. And at first that wasn't such a great deal because this movie was a flop when it originally came out. And they think that was partly due to poor reception by critics, which I'm like, of course, like cis, straight, hetero, male, white critics. I'm shocked that they gave this film bad reviews. Uh, Like, well, you know, that's annoying. But um, also there was an actor strike, so they couldn't promote it. Yeah, Jane and Chris were not allowed to go out and like do press conferences and interviews saying, come see our movie. They, that was absolutely, you know, they they stayed in solidarity with the strike. Like good. Yes. There's a story that the producer on this film like basically cried all weekend that it opened because it was like, no one's seeing my movie. But it turns out people in Hong Kong were seeing it because I guess it was huge in China the first year that it came out and it was in theaters for a full year without like, you know, leaving theaters. Um, And then eventually in the U.S. it spread uh, because of cable and because of video rentals. It spread by word of mouth and became a cult classic. And thank goodness it did. I think this is a really gorgeously made film. And you know what? You had said this earlier and I couldn't quite verbally piece it together until you had said it. 
I think what makes it so special, what makes it not cheesy or corny is the level of acting talent we have and the level of production we have. Um, I think all of these factors really elevate what maybe could have been lesser. Um, part of what the art direction aimed to do initially was to create a world that looked like an impressionist painting. And mm. I think you really feel that when they go back in time, they showed Jane Seymour, the artwork at the beginning and saying like, this is what we're going for. Um, the director, I believe did that, Jeannot, I don't know how to say his last name, Jeannot Swark, Swark. So it's spelled S-Z-W-A-R-C. Oh, and wait, one more thing. We, when um, Jane Seymour told us about her love story with Christopher Reeve, the whole audience like audibly gasped and we were like, oh my goodness, because she was kind of like sharing that for the first time with everybody. But she's like, don't worry, we all had beautiful kids. And she named one of her kids after Christopher Reeve and he was her child's godfather. Yeah. And then she mentioned that um, Christopher Reeve gave the, the vest that he wears in the film, the famous vest where he pulls out the penny. He gave that to her and she gave that to her son who now has it, who wears it on the Mackinac Island somewhere in time days that they have. So it's totally a full circle. So yeah, Jane Seymour, that was one of the best like opening conversations I've ever seen at a TCM Fest. There was so much knowledge in it and so many great points. And um, I wanted to share all of those. Sarah, shall we discuss the music in this? It's such a big part of it. The Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on a theme by Paganini. I think that's what it's fully called. Yeah, 18th variation of Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, when I hear this song, I immediately think of the movie. It's so inextricably linked now to this film because it is used to such great effect. Um, but I think it has cropped up in a couple other things. If you are a fan of Groundhog Day, Phil plays it for Rita at the very end of Groundhog Day. Um, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also randomly, it was an arrangement of it was also used in the trailer for the Clint Eastwood movie, The Mule, which came out a couple years ago. Oh, didn't so, see that coming. Very, very interesting choice there. Uh, interesting choice. I read the book that this movie is based on. It was originally called Bid Time Return, which is from Shakespeare. And then when the movie was titled Somewhere in Time, then the book was republished with that new title. In the book that this is based on, that song is not in there. The song that uh, Richard and Elise bond over is Mahler's Ninth Symphony. What does that sound like? Is that famous? It's famous. It's very well known. I can't hum it. Um, I don't know. I was listening to it earlier today and I I tried to memorize it so I could hum it and I couldn't. Um, But like specifically in the book, it says that right before he successfully makes it back to back in time um in the book he goes back to 1896 so a little bit further than in the movie um he's listening to the fourth movement with his, which is adagio very slow um it doesn't have a very different feel to it than the uh, rachmaninoff in the film like in the film i think rachmaninoff is it's very like sweeping and grandiose and very romantic um, with a little bit of melancholy, I feel like. People at home, if you want to hear really quick, it sounds like this. Bah, 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 bah. Like that. Really gorgeous. Bah, bah, you just... bah, bah, bah. Sorry, Sarah, please continue. Oh, no, cut, cut that bit out. I, mean, I have such a frog in my throat. Oh, my God. But yeah, the, no, the Mahler is gorgeous in its own way. Um, I was reading, there's a famous uh, 20th century essayist who described it, you know, as he's listening to the fourth movement of Mahler's ninth, that it sounds like goodbye. It's a much slower 
piece. Um, it's orchestra, full orchestra, like the Rachmaninoff, um, but it's much more somber and much more bittersweet. And it is, there is kind of a sense of like, we just had this great time, but now it's time to say goodbye. Very different feeling than the Rachmaninoff. It's beautiful. I definitely recommend it. And that's like, just like in the movie, in the book, they bond over loving Mahler. Well, something that I think is interesting too about this is like the whole what came first, the chicken or the egg that happens a lot in this film. So his favorite song is Rachmaninoff and he hums it for her. It becomes her favorite song, even though it's not released yet. And I love that they do bond over. She's like, oh, I know Rachmaninoff. I, I saw his concert at the Philharmonic. I haven't heard that one yet. And you're like, oh, because it's not going to be released for like 20 more years. So there's like instances like that. But then there's the watch. So one of the debates that I hear a lot about this movie is where did the watch come from? Because yeah. she gives the watch to him and he takes it back in time for her. So one, where does the watch come from? Two, is it in the book? Do they explain where the watch comes from? Doesn't matter either. I don't think the watch is in the book. I don't think Arthur is in the book either. <gasps> little oh, little Arthur. <laughs> I really liked eyes. Arthur. <laughs> that that, that was a great actor. addition. <laughs> I know. The child actor was so cute. <laughs> And I kept looking on his rubber ball to see if it was a modern rubber ball and if they had messed up. I, I could not. I, every time they had the rubber ball in the picture, I was like, ooh, was that made in the 70s? I want to see. I couldn't figure it out. So I think it's fine. Um, but yeah, I love that tie-in of Arthur too. So what Sarah's talking about is there's a character named Arthur who's at the hotel as an older man. Um, and then he's, he's saying to Christopher Reeve, like, you look familiar. And I'm like, wow, you've got a great memory because you were like four at the time. But when we go back in time, really? we see Arthur is a very cute little boy playing with a ball and Christopher Reeve gets his ball back for him. And he's like, you know, gee, thank you, mister. You know, cause it's the past. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's yeah. a really, I thought that was a really cute addition, especially because he's there at his death too. And he's the one that says he was such a fine man. What a shame. So I really like the character of Arthur in that addition to this piece. But yeah. So the watch full circle, where does it come from? We'll never know, I guess. I don't think it does matter, I guess. It's definitely a, a paradox. That's a hard one to figure out. And then also with time travel, he didn't look very far into it, but it seems like he's not there in the past. So it's like he wants to repeat things from the past. Like he wants to make sure he has the same room that he had and write down the same time. But then it's like he wants to still stay in the past, even though he's not a part of it. So it's like he wants to change some things, keep other things. I don't know. Oh, you mean like when they're having their conversation about the future and getting married and stuff? Or? Well, like he he was in the future and he read all about her. And he knows that she never got married and he knows that she like, you know, was secluded and didn't have a family and stuff. So he wants to change that. He wants to be her partner and marry her and maybe yeah. raise a family with her. We don't know, but he knows that didn't happen. And yet when he goes back, he's trying to recreate the things that he knows that did happen. So I just think that's interesting. He doesn't want to change things. He doesn't want to change time. And as a result of that, it doesn't change. He's out of the picture. You know, Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't think of that. Yeah, they do. They do make it clear when he's still in the 1970s that yeah she was a recluse she was she was very like you know Greta Garbo I wish to be alone it would be one thing if he in the course of going through all those books there had been a note there about like the great love of her life or a man she met in her youth whatever but there's no sign of that anywhere no nope. side note when he's at the when he's at the library doing his research sitting uh -huh. across from him at the table is Meg Ryan what yeah. I did not know that her her back is to camera. You can only see you can only see about a quarter of her face because her back is to camera. 
but that is that is Meg Ryan as oh, playing an playing an extra at the library. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> and Meg Ryan, of course, she's in this amazing romantic film, and she would go on to be in her own amazing romantic films. I love that legacy for her. Oh, wow, Sarah, thank you. I didn't know I needed that in my life, but I did. Thank you. Um, yeah. Also, so this conversation is reminding me of Christopher Plummer's character. So a debate that we were having after watching this, um, I remember there were two things we talked about. One, you totally cleared up for me and I was like, okay, I see it your way and I think your way is the right way. This one, we never came to like decide. Um, but what do you, what do we think about Christopher Plummer's character? So he knows things from the future. So the question is, is he psychic or is he himself a time traveler? And the man that he's referring to, was this his own intense research? Like, do we think he might even be from a even further time in the future than Christopher Reeve? Like maybe he's from like 2012 and he went back in time and knows about like some man, but he doesn't know who the man is because he's been doing all this research. So the time traveler thing could totally be a real fact or he could be psychic and I'm not sure which one there are uh, there's like details that support both cases. No, absolutely. And I, I stand by what I said to you after we, we saw this last spring, <laughs> because, you know, watching it again this time, you know, in preparation for doing this podcast there, the entire sequence leading up to this one part is like the main through line is. Richard has advanced knowledge and is trying to make sure things happen the way he knows they happen. Mm -hmm. So he pretty much starting from the moment he, he spends the night sleeping on the patio. He like wakes up on the wicker sofa. One of my details as a Michigander watching that was like, he would be eaten up by mosquitoes full stop. <laughs> I was like, you can't sleep outside like that. And you're like, no, no, no. The mosquitoes would have murdered him. Please continue. Also. I mean, I'm from a similar latitude as you also from around the great lakes. Like it would have been really, even in June, which is when he's there, June, 1912, he would have been covered in dew, right? Like because of the humidity and stuff. Oh, maybe. Right? Yeah, I hadn't. I was just thinking about the mosquitoes. I wasn't thinking about anything else. <laughs> but you're right. Maybe there would have been dew. No, it would have been a very uncomfortable night. Um, <laughs> I also love when he when he kind of gets off and he's kind of like, you know, waking up. He it looks a little bit like the tramp, like Charlie Chaplin. He's even got the hat. <sighs> he's got the hat, the the round bowler hat, kind of mm -hmm. tilted to a rakish angle. And he kind of, you know, wiggles his shoulders and he kicks his leg out. It's I got major Charlie Chaplin vibes from that whole little bit there. Like it was a tiny little, you know, like a, a nod to Charlie Chaplin. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I, that was absolutely what I got from that. But then so from that moment, he is fixated on getting to meet Elise, but also making sure that he fills out the guest book, you know, the guest check-in book as he had seen it in the 70s signing it in exactly the right time at 9.18 a.m. on this date. And so that's like in the audience's head, like he has advanced knowledge. He's done all this research. He saw the guest book, you know, in the 70s. So he knows he's there, blah, blah, blah. He has advanced knowledge and he is going about making sure that what is supposed to happen happens. That is all followed by, you know, he and Elise go out on this afternoon, this beautiful afternoon excursion where they walk around and they ride a horse and buggy and they go out to the uh, uh, lighthouse in the distance and they're talking and, and it's beautiful and she says a couple strange things about her manager robinson that he he always knows the right moves to make when it comes to her career 
and that he he kind of seems to know things in advance. So with the seeds planted, with that whole sequence with Richard Collier, it's like, what else are you supposed to think except that Robinson is also a time traveler? Because he, he seems to be acting in this way that would suggest that he has advanced knowledge of things that are going to happen. That's what I get out of that section of the movie. I think I would agree that he's a time traveler, but I think the argument for psychic is there are moments when he's unsure. Like when they're having that argument in the gazebo, he's like, he's not 100% sure that she will be a star. He just has an inkling of an idea that she will be. So I think the argument for him being psychic as opposed to time traveler, which both things could be present in this world. This is like a magical realm of a world, right? You know, mind time travel exists. People know things they shouldn't. People feel things without understanding them. So, you know, both things could exist in this world. But yeah, I think the argument for psychic was that even though he seems to be sure of a lot of things, he still in that moment is like, I think she could become this, but I'm not sure. And maybe that's just because time isn't written yet. And he's worried that time could change. Things could change. Yeah. I don't know though, but I do like the idea of him being a time traveler. And I really like the idea of him being a time traveler even further in the future. Yeah. If he's from a completely different era from Richard, he has totally different knowledge. He has access to, I mean, as much as I loved the whole sequence with Richard in the library, digging through the card catalog and all, like, oh, I wrote that down in my notes, like, oh, old fashioned research. I love it. You'll love to see it. I wrote the library saves the day because it did. Okay. <laughs> oh, it so did. But yeah, no, I think it would add another layer to the story that is just not, we don't know much about Robinson except for his business relationship with Elise. They don't really go into his character and who he is and what his motives are, except I want Elise to be a star, you know? Yeah. So I don't care about her personal happiness. I want her to be a star. I did really like his line where he goes, do you think I did all of this for her just to grow her into a wife? Like, yeah. how dare you? Like, I, I actually was like, yeah. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you're a controlling and manipulative manager. Yes, there's a lot of selfishness here. But yeah, I appreciate that. You really think that there is something in her that's extraordinary. Also, conversely, one of my favorite lines in the whole film, please allow me to um, go there really quick is uh, Jane Seymour's line. So uh, Christopher Plummer is noticing that Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour are getting close and he is afraid of this. He somehow with his advanced knowledge knows that a man will enter her life and break her heart, I think. But he doesn't, he doesn't understand. He'll, a man will enter her life and change it. Somehow. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily a broken heart. He says but... destroy. I think the word he used, right? Didn't he say you, you come to destroy her or something like that? I for, there's language like that. So you're right. Not break her heart. Yeah. There was an expectation in the night in 1912 that if a woman was married, she wasn't going to work. So, I mean, if, if she did hook up with Richard, she would not act anymore. So potentially he's cool with it though. Cause he's from now. So he's like, yeah, I want you to be an actress. Obviously mm -hmm. I write plays. We'd be perfect together. I would love to have seen the plays that he wrote in the past from future perspective for her. That would have been amazing. Yeah. I know. I hope that made sense to people at home. But anyway, her so Jane Seymour has this quote um, when she's starting to fall in love with Christopher Reeve and she's putting Christopher Plummer in his place. And she says, she's basically like, look, our relationship is strictly business. Then she says, I'm involved with you as an actress, Mr. Robinson, not a doormat. Do not attempt to wipe your boots on me. And I was like, yes, yes, you tell him. Yeah, I really appreciated that part. That was a great she line. Does, she does have a lot of fire and spark. I mean, when they're around other people, 
she acts with perfect decorum and she's very polite as would have been expected of her but as soon as like they're in private behind closed doors she she's got them in vigor yeah she's got spirit I forget how they express it Teresa Wright has a phrase for it in the beginning and Teresa Wright also has a comment about the manager she's like they had a very unusual relationship it was weird you know she's like I don't know about that yeah there's so many they, they draw so much attention to it by constantly making comments like that their relationship it's weird he was very strange he blah blah blah. and so like that's another thing that feels like another uh element to the argument that he's a time traveler because it it would be if he was like let's say he was a time traveler he would have come literally out of nowhere he would have done all of his research in the future figured out how he could intercept her cross paths with her at you know at which point was she in this location whatever and he would have just like come out of nowhere and been like, hey, I believe in you as an actress. Let me manage you. And that would be kind of weird. <laughs> he would have been in his 30s or 40s, right? 40s? How old is he supposed to be in this, do you think? I'm not sure. But they say at one point that he's been her manager for nine years. So he, if he is a time traveler, he's been back in, you know, in the 1900s for quite some time now. He would have been totally integrated assimilated Mm -hmm. into the era by then christopher Plummer, by the way is chic as hell in this like is he still hot yeah he is he's still very attractive i think um and he's extra blonde in this and he's got that weird goatee i could do without it but um (laughs) he's so he's such a good actor and he just inhabits his roles right and he's so stylish and the scene when him and Christopher Reeve are having a conversation and he's got his cane and his glove and he's like leaning back and he looks exactly from this era, right? Yeah. And then cut to Christopher Reeve, who's like wearing the wrong thing. You know, he picked the wrong clothes. He's not quite there. He's not as smooth. I just love the juxtaposition there. And I think Christopher Plummer is just so talented. Oh, you know, he's so great. I mean, I remember being a little kid, you know, Sound of Music gets played every Easter. And I, oh, I love that scene where he and Julie Andrews are dancing together and they're, they're like extended eye contact, a lot of yeah. extended eye contact. <laughs> well, that's what happens in this. Lots of extended eye contact. And fun fact, that scene where they're dancing, um, Jane Seymour was like, look, Christopher Reeve was great at a lot of things. He was not good at dancing. And <laughs> <laughs> you can tell he's struggling a little. It's cute. In the couple moments before he cuts in, he's like moving awkwardly yeah. around and like, oh, honey. Stick but it to- makes sense. You know, <laughs> if you're from the 80s and you got to go back to the 1910s and dance to like, oh, you beautiful doll. Yeah, that would be tricky. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing great, sweetie. And she's like, I was a professional dancer. And we're like, yes, yes, you were. But yeah, so that's all great. Okay, I actually want to talk about two things. One, I want to talk about what do you think happens to your body when you time travel? What is your body doing in the present and how much time passes in the present while you're time traveling to the past in this world? I just want to know what you think. Wait, so do you think he's not physically going to the past? Like his body is still in 1979? To me, what I thought when I first saw this was that his body stays in the present, but his like he goes to the past, like his mind does. It's all kind of like... His body and his mind are in the past, but they're also in the future. So I thought his body was like rotting in the future and he could only go as long as he could live in the future. Like that was my initial thought when I watched this as a kid. So when he came back and he ends up dying, I didn't totally think it was from a broken heart. I thought it was because his body was so depleted and he didn't want to put anything into it because he was so sad. So I guess a little bit broken heart. But because remember when the other time traveler guy was like, when I got back, even though I was only there for a second, my body was totally exhausted and I had no energy. So I thought his body 
also stayed in, like it was, his body was kind of in two places. Okay. See, I didn't, I didn't have that interpretation at all. I believed that because he's in the same room, like when he travels back successfully to 1912, he's in that room where, where, uh, what's their face? Rollo and Maud are, are having their little lover spat, their little <laughs> argument about stupid shit. I interpret like when he comes to on the couch there for the very first time and he looks around like, oh my God, I did it. He's like freaking out a little bit for, he has that moment where he like closes his eyes and he bows his head. Like, oh, like suddenly he's been hit by this wave of exhaustion, like intense exhaustion. And as he shifts on the couch and gets up to his feet, he kind of grunts like he's in pain. And he has a little bit of like a sweat sheen on his forehead. And so I saw that and I was like, okay, he has traveled back in time over 60 years. That took a lot out of him. It's it's a very physically taxing thing that he just did. And it shows. So I totally bought that he was physically in 1912. And then the the reverse is true as well. When he sees the 1979 penny and oh, no, he gets sucked back to the 70s. He comes to like sprawled on the floor. He has sweat all the way through his coat. His, his back is covered in sweat and he's like, you know, all floppy and noodly because he's so exa- worn out and exhausted from what happened. So like the other guy said, it's it's physically exhausting. It takes a lot out of you. And so when they sh- they show that on screen, like he's sweaty, he's sore, he's exhausted. Like I believed that he physically went back to 1912. The physical exertion to go back, you even see it when he's trying. He's laying in that bed, sweating just in the bed. So even before he goes, you're right, you can see the exertion. Well, you would change my mind about the dying of heartbreak too. Because I wasn't sure, like last year when we talked about this, you were like, no, he died of a broken heart. That's like a thing that you can die of. And now I buy it. Now I'm like, okay, I see it. Well, and I think even Christopher Reeve had a problem with that too. Like when he read the script, he, I mean, as soon as he read the script, he loved it and wanted to sign on, but he did have a problem with the end. Like, is this realistic? Like, could you just like, from an incredible shock from broken heart, could you die? And I think, I can't remember now where I saw this, but I think he did research. He talked to like medical experts and they're like, no, yeah, it's, there is a, a condition called broken heart syndrome. The thing that's unusual about it, that kind of, caught people's eye like why is this happening is that it happens in people who have zero history of heart disease and they don't have any coronary blockages so like they don't have you know cholesterol buildup in their veins so they shouldn't be having heart attacks and yet they experience these symptoms that seem to indicate a heart attack and so i mean it seems to be caused by a shock like stress hormones your body gets flooded with stress hormones and they almost act like a poison But he dies of starvation. So when I said broken heart, I actually didn't even mean broken heart syndrome. I just meant he's so sad that he can't bring himself to like live anymore, that he essentially kills himself by not eating. But I didn't realize you were like, no, literally broken heart syndrome. Like this is the medical term behind it. I'm not a medical professional and I don't even play one on TV. But (laughs) as I was watching the end of the movie, I was trying to catalog like what symptoms he appeared to be exhibiting. And it, it sounds like he hasn't, eaten anything in a week because he's just been like in his hotel room in a basically a catatonic state like just sitting in a chair staring out the window he is very pale he looks like he's a little sweaty the red eyes like shout out to the makeup team they did a really good job he looked really really like he was unwell yeah oh totally and the doctor says something right before uh richard goes out you know dies 
the doctor says something about him needing oxygen. So presumably he can tell that his blood ox is low or something. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, he's, he's lost the love of his life. This woman he was obsessed with. It's documented that, you know, people do experience crazy stuff when they are unlucky in love. Like food has no taste and you like can't sleep and can't eat. Well, it's like the partners who die right after one another. You know, they can't. Yeah. All the stories about like, yeah, you know, we were together. They were together for 70 years and they died within hours of each other or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It happens all the time. It happens <sighs> too often to just be coincidence or a one off. Like it's it's a thing. And then they even drive it home too with, you had mentioned like his makeup, which again, fantastic. Uh, But also they change how they shoot things and the lighting. So this whole time when we're on, you know, I I was going to say Mackinac Island, but I forget what they call it here. They just call it the Grand Hotel. I don't know if they say where they're at. I don't know if they do. Yeah. It was all sun dappled and like all of these colors were rosy and warm. And so after he loses her, they show everything in a blue, everything is gray and blue. And he's wearing this like sweater because now all of a sudden, even though it's summer, it's cold because he's sad. And then um, they even show like the trash over like overflowing from the trash cans they're like look we're in the modern century now trash is everywhere and you're sad i was like it's a very big metaphor (laughs) even the tree bark is gray i actually found an article from a cinematography magazine they shot the modern and past sequences on two completely different film stocks to get that look because it's like almost sepia toned at times yeah the goal was for the modern 1970s sequences to all be very sharp and crystal clear Mm. and bold colors because like i mean when he walks into that hall of history it's like bam fire engine red and then in everything in the past is supposed to look like very gauzy almost like you're looking through it you're looking through a um a veil or something Everything's very soft and pastel colors. And I think they also tried to even put more filters on the lenses whenever they shot Jane Seymour, because she's supposed to be just like this figure of such adoration and, you know, idolatry. You, You just like she's a dream girl. And so they wanted her to look dreamy. And she does. What I think I love about this, I was trying to think what makes this such a good romance. Like, why, why does it touch us in the way that it does? And I think, first of all, all good romances have to feel that they are deeper than just just a look, right? So he doesn't travel through time just because she's gorgeous. He travels because there's this connection that he can't explain. And when we see her fall in love with him too, it's not because he looks handsome because right away she's like, look, you're, I don't know what's going on. I don't know that I like, like, I are yeah. you the one, but I don't know. I don't know about you, sir. Um, she's wary. She, yeah, she's wary. Great word. And then um, she falls in love with him through that montage and they show it's when he's clearly speaking about something with passion, she's taking him in and that's the moment she decides she loves him. So I think it's like, For her, it's the whole package too. It's not just like, oh, he's a very handsome man. It's like, I will like him once I hear what he thinks and what he has to say. Um, But yeah, there's, I think the love story is also really tender. What makes it so special is like, even the moments where they kiss, it's like they're savoring every second. Everything is so slow. Every touch is meaningful. They slow it all down. And you really feel like their love is something different, something special that like only comes around once in a while. Like I've never been in love like they're in love. Oh my God. The way he like cups her face and looks into her eyes like she is 
the the most wonderful thing that's ever existed and you're like oh my god he literally says like oh my god what's happening and I'm like same girl same girl same (laughs) that's a problem I have with a lot of romantic books but also romantic movies is that there's just like because I don't we've had this discussion before I think I don't believe in love at first sight I don't think that's a real thing and so I think a lot of romantic stories rely on that. Like the hero and heroine see each other across a crowded room and it's like instantly, oh yeah, baby, I love you. And I just, I can't, I can't buy that. I can't get into that at all. There has to be something else there. And this has it. Yeah. Oh, when he, when he sees the painting of her or the picture of her, I get chills every time. I, it's unexplainable. It's just like, I don't know. The, the fact later on that you see she's looking at him when the photo is taken and this it's this moment where time stops for them. They're looking at each other in this bustling backstage area. Everyone's rushing around and there's like this moment that is stopped in time for them. I don't know. I can't, ex- I don't know that I can explain what makes this so special. The rest of the world disappears. But yeah, they have great chemistry um, and it's just, wow. Christopher Reeve. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, just stop it with your stupid handsome face dude like he is one of those actors that is just oh my god I can't even (laughs) well no but it's like he's so handsome but also he's so smart and he's smart in real life and he's smart in the movie and I think that's part of the appeal too because he does win her over he's funny that whole scene where he like is making jokes for her and she's like oh he does that little comedy but like if you if you do not walk out with me I don't know what I shall do yeah he does a funny voice yeah and we know that he's cultured in this movie in real life because in his first of all he has a gorgeous office in chicago i was like oh i wish that i had oh that office God, that wow. office <laughs> but he has like new york city ballet posters and christopher reeve had mentioned i think in real life that he liked the way he wanted to play superman and the way he was like drawn to roles was if they had vulnerability about them he didn't want to just play anything like macho and i, I feel like you can feel that about him like he's this very tall, strong, handsome, beautiful man, but he, there's sensitivity to him and there's intelligence to him. Oh, totally. He, he's a character actor trapped in the body of a leading man. Those were the parts that he was offered, especially after he was Superman, like the quintessential leading man. And I mean, quite frankly, a lot of leading men, like the characters that are offered to them are pretty flat. They're not really, they don't really go interesting places. And Christopher Reeve was like, no, I want a, like a meaty role that I can really sink my teeth into. Well, and I think he turns this into that. Like he makes it what's special about it. Cause I think this could have been a boring role, but he adds layers to it. And his acting is so good. And so is Jane Seymour's. And so is Christopher Plummer's. So we get this awesome piece because of the three of them, as well as all the things we've mentioned. Um, but Audience Home, I do want to tell you about Christopher Reeve a little bit in case you don't know who he is. Everyone at home, Christopher Reeve, Uh, was an actor who was born in 1952 and passed in 2004. Um, He was very smart. He studied at Cornell and Juilliard, but apparently he only graduated from Cornell. He dropped out or left or something and then got into Juilliard and then was like, well, I didn't actually finish my time at Cornell. So could like my first year at Juilliard actually just be me graduating from Cornell? And Cornell was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So that's what he did. (laughs) After his first year of Juilliard, Cornell was like, and you've graduated. Congratulations. And he's like, and I went to Juilliard. I win. And you're like, yes, you do. Um, And at Juilliard, he became friends with Robin Williams. They were classmates and they became good friends. I mean, like Juilliard, in case people don't know, is one of the most selective schools in the country, if not the world, right? I mean, they are, they churn out musicians, actors and actresses, like it's a, it's an arts school and you have to be 
like the best of the best of the best. And so that means that their classes are very small. And so, I mean, yeah, Christopher Reeve and Robin Williams in the same cohort at Juilliard is just crazy to think about. Two amazingly talented actors and talented in very different ways, of course, but like, damn. I wish that was a movie. I wish I'm like, I would have loved seeing that documentary. <laughs> that would have been great. Chris and Robin. Chris and Robin in school. I think, weren't they even roommates? Wasn't that a thing? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, they were good friends. And they talked about, um, in an article I read, it was that they were in a dialect class together and Robin Williams was just like off the charts with the dialects. <laughs> Christopher Reeve was more subdued and Robin Williams was going for it. Um, but anyway, some of his famous films uh, are, he was Superman in the Superman films. So that was what he was most well known for. He did four of those films. And I have to say, like, that is that is a challenging role. And Christopher Reeve is the right choice for that role because he understood the assignment. You're not just playing Superman. You are you are Cal L pretending to be human, Clark Kent, but Clark Kent is also pretending to be a human when he's actually an alien. And Superman, like he he understood the all the layers of who that guy was. Of how sometimes he is fully himself and sometimes he's holding back from people around him, protecting his identity. And like the the original Superman, the first one see it he's so good I would argue that's because of like being trained as an actor because he's looking at things with depth he's looking at things the way you would look at like text and to look at theatrical things he was doing that for film um so I don't know I think that's probably why he was so successful at making something out of that role I think he is still the quintessential Superman I mean I don't think anyone has ever has even come close to I mean no offense to Henry Cavill but Chris Reeve is still Superman I don't watch a lot of Superman stuff. I'm not a big, I know everyone's shocked at home. I'm not a big like comic book person. So I can't really weigh in. Cause like, I think I saw Superman once when I was 13. And I think that's oh, all so I've good. Seen. out of all the Supermans. I'm not even kidding. That's the only Superman I've ever seen. <laughs> I watched, I mean, did you, did you watch the adventures of Lois and Clark in the nineties? Oh we wait, I've seen when we were kids. Yeah. I've seen episodes of that, but I, I'm not like. I don't know a lot. If, even if you don't like comic books, honestly, I would still watch Superman because like I said, he understood the assignment. I'm going to go watch it just based on this conversation, Sarah. I'm going to give it another chance. He's really good. I just also want to mention two of my favorite roles of his are when he like bucks his traditional stereotypes. So um, one of my favorite movies that he's in is Death Trap. He is so good in that movie. And that movie is fantastic. Yeah. So even though we're not the double feature portion and it's not a romantic movie at all, go see Death Trap. Um, and then Noises Off, another, and both of those are based on plays. Um, they're plays that became films. And he excels in both of them. And they are both different from what you would think of Christopher Reeve as being. So I love both of those performances. But um, part of the Christopher Reeve legacy um, is that in 1995, he broke his neck while he was uh, he was thrown from a horse in an equestrian competition. A couple of years after Somewhere in Time, he was cast as Count Vronsky in a TV adaptation of uh, Anna Karenina. And so because... Count Vronsky is a military man and he had no idea how to ride a horse. Chris Reeve is like, well, I better learn how to ride a horse. And so he learns how to ride a horse for Anna Karenina and he really likes it. And so he starts like riding in competitions and stuff. At this competition in 1995, he's riding his horse towards a jump. And 
rather than take the jump or even attempt it, the horse stops dead. And, you know, the laws of physics, objects in motion stay in motion. The horse stops, Chris Reeve doesn't. He flies over the horse. And because the stop was so sudden and unexpected, his hands were tangled up in the reins. So, I mean, riding horses, you fall a lot. You know, horses get spooked by random stuff. They they throw their riders a lot, even if you're a professional. And so he was used to falling. He knew how to do it. And I'm sure even from his acting training, like you do learn how to do pratfalls in a way where you fall and you're not hurt, but it's funny or, you know, whatever. So his hands were tangled up in the reins. So he didn't, he couldn't have his hands free to like brace himself or, you know, protect himself as he fell. He crushed his C1 and C2 vertebra, which are way up, like at the back of your skull, like way, way up at the very, very top of your spine. He immediately lost the ability to breathe on his own. So like he's laying on the ground, he's not breathing. Fortunately, someone was standing right there and saw immediately oh my God, he's not breathing. And they ran up and started doing CPR, but he became paralyzed from the neck down and had to breathe on a ventilator for the rest of his life. It was a very, very shocking, shocking, terrible accident. He, at one point, you know, I'm sure in the weeks that followed the full extent of what had just happened and how his life had changed forever, you know, was hitting him and his wife, Dana. He even said to her at one point, like, we should talk about letting me go. I mean, if you think about it, he, you know, he'd lived a full life, full, fully active and able to move around to have all of that taken away from you. You know, adults are not adaptive like kids are. Like if you're a kid and you have an accident, you grow up in a, in a wheelchair, you just get used to it. But if you're an adult who has lived decades, able to walk and do everything for yourself, like that's hard. <laughs> he was a really active guy. Because he was a pilot and he was a sailor. Uh, he was riding horses. He really liked being adventurous and using his body so he was an outdoorsy guy and so this was a terrible blow it was he had very a lot of dark moments in the weeks that followed the accident but then there's this wonderful story he's in his hospital room and a doctor comes in the doctor's talking with like a funny accent and he's saying something about a rectal exam or something right like it's a whole and then he he realizes that it's robin williams doing a bit and that was the first time that he laughed since the accident and like i mean that says so much about their wonderful friendship that kind of helped him gather himself back together and figure out how to move forward and he he really like he really did live such an inspiring life after his accident he went on to um continue to act occasionally he was in the remake of rear window that they did uh for television he even directed he directed a film called in the gloaming in 1997 and he made appearances on the tv show smallville which is about superman um and he also started a charity and a quote that i had heard from him was basically like oh i'm not going to remember the exact words but it was basically like once i realized i wanted to live because i loved life i didn't want to live for other people you know to placate them to be like look i'm alive for you know i'm here i wanted to live because i loved life life was worth living and i thought oh that's that was really beautiful <laughs> and i do and i think that that visit from robin williams helped him find that again where it's just like i mean can you imagine? It basically, it's a private comedic performance by yeah. one of the greatest comedians ever. Who means something to you? Who's like one of your dearest, oldest friends yeah. showing up for you? Yeah. All of us know what Robin Williams' performances are like, and I'm, we could all like fill in the blanks and, you know, imagine what that must have been like. 
I also heard that um, when he was when he was young and you know just had left Juilliard, he was in a play with Catherine Hepburn, and they really bonded. And um, during his time in the play, uh, he was also doing a soap opera. So it'd be like, he'd do the soap opera in the day and do the play at night. And he wasn't eating right. Like he was eating just junk food and coffee all the time. And so opening night of the play, he passed out on stage and the understudy had to come in and finish it. Oh God. And Catherine Hepburn was like, you're being a moron. Or what I, she said something really adorable and Catherine <laughs> Hepburn-y. And um, he like got help, finished the play, like <laughs> not that night, but finished the run of the play for like a year. And him and Catherine Hepburn became very close. And he said he felt like she treated him the way she would have treated a grandson if she had had one. And apparently sometimes some of the press had rumors that like 67 year old Catherine Hepburn and 22 year old Christopher Reeve were having a romance. And he's like, honestly, I'm so flattered by that. And that's amazing. <laughs> Now, can and can you imagine being a new graduate of acting school and like didn't she personally pick him for that role too yes, like she did Catherine Hepburn one of the absolute all-time greats is like I pick you to be in my play I mean holy cow to play my grandson in my play and then in real life I'm going to love you and treat you like my grandson because there's something about you that's special he really I mean there's a, I know there's a stereotype about American actors that they're just pretty faces and Someone said, hey, maybe you should do movies. But he he had the training. He had the skills. He was wonderful. He was really wonderful. I think he did so much good in his life and his life went the way that it was like, you know, meant to go. But I sometimes wonder what his career could have been like if it had kept going because he did have all those skills. Yeah. I mean, I think it was actually on a downturn. He was like the movies he was in were getting smaller or he, I mean, one of the last big roles he had was in Remains of the Day. Um, but that's a very small part. I think he just pops up at the end a little bit, right? But don't you think, you know, everybody's career comes back around. Like once they get older, all of a sudden they're playing a bunch of parts again. Like oh, yeah, what's well, happening with Kevin Costner or Michael Caine, well, right? Like White men, white men always have that option. You're correct. <laughs> he would have started playing the dads and the grandpas and in all the movies. Yeah. Or the mentor figure, the foundation that he and his wife ran after his accident. Like when at the time that he became paralyzed, it was basically accepted wisdom that, oh, you injured your spinal cord, you're paralyzed. That's it. Nothing we can do. That's what it, that's, you know, the roll of the dice. Um, but it was really him pushing, you know, for new research, new, new drugs, new treatments, new therapies, all this stuff that really made some like very real advances in that area of, uh, medical research and treatment and stuff and like he actually did regain some feeling like if you touched his hand he could feel it and I think I read that um, when he was underwater he could move his legs again a little bit I mean this is like year after years and years of therapy and stuff like one thing that he did constantly was he made sure that he kept his muscle tone and his circulation so that in the event that maybe a cure a treatment was discovered he'd be ready you know, because inactivity makes your muscles turn to soup, basically. And he didn't, if he, if, you know, he, if he had the chance to walk again, he was going to be ready. And another thing that the foundation was really good at was finding medical researchers and putting them together if their research was complementary. Because a lot of researchers at that time in the 90s and 2000s, they kind of operated in vacuums. Like I'm over here with my little team in our little lab, and we're doing this research on spinal cord injuries and we have no idea that you know across the country or on the other side of the world someone else is doing something researching something that is actually really complementary and would help us with our work and so they would connect those people well and something that i do love about 
um, just his like continued fight in living too, is he maintained a lot of his friendships and Jane Seymour talked about how they remained friends. Like they didn't work out romantically, even though they loved each other, but they remained friends. And as I mentioned earlier, like he was the godfather to one of her children who she named after him. They were so close even up to the end. So I, I love stories like that. Um, I'm going to like totally turn this in a new direction and say, even though this is a very romantic film, there are also some like creepy elements that I kind of love about it, but that also scared me a little as a kid. So in the opening, we mentioned that uh, Jane Seymour's character, it is not Jane Seymour. I do not know the actress that plays the older version of her. I'm so sorry. Um, but she's like draped in black. And then she comes up to Christopher Reeve and says, come back to me. And it's a little bit creepy. Well, you saw this as a kid, is that? Because I was not creeped out by her. Oh, as a kid, that was creepy. And then the Penny thing creeped me out so hard. When they pull back, um, when he finds that Penny, oh, oh, it scared me as a kid. And she's screaming. She's screaming his name. Bitch. But she also screamed when she saw him. So that's extra sad because she like screamed in that way when she sees that he's come back. And it's like unbridled screaming of like, oh my God, Richard, you're back. And then she screams Richard and it's also terrifying. So we've got the dual scary and not scary Richard screams. Um, obviously I'm an adult now and I it's not as scary for me. But as a kid, I was like, ah, that's scary. I mean, it is very sudden the way it's shot. Like they're having this wonderful like picnic on the floor of the parlor being very cute and flirty and romantic with each other. And then all of a sudden, dun, 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 like it's very, a very sharp, hard turn in the narrative. And I, I probably was startled when I saw that. And I remember as a kid being like, well, why didn't he just go back? You have nothing but time. You can heal up and get better and go back. And then my adult self was like, yeah, but he knows history and he knows that he didn't go back. Like he knows that she was alone now and he knows why. And he can't do it. Yeah, the first time around, he had the guest sign-in book that had his signature in it. So he really only had proof that he was there at 9.18 a.m. on that one particular morning. There is a tragedy in that they are only together for two days. They have this epic, incredible love story that lasts for two days and affects her to the point where she will never love again and where he dies. Like, mm-hmm. that's intense. That's kind of tragic. If the story wasn't so lovely, I think it would be very depressing. Yeah, that's not healthy to be that hung up on one person. I mean, like the great 20th century philosopher Cher said, do you believe in life after love? <laughs> I think I think you have to. I think it's clear that he didn't. But it's so clear that she devoted her life to like, she had that miniature music box of the Grand Hotel that played their song. And then when he opens it and he's like, that's my favorite song in the whole wide world. And you're like, oh my God. So she she clearly showed devotion throughout her life to him. Oh, yeah, she lived decades after that two-day interlude with Richard. like, And she was a recluse and she had like no social life outside of the stage. But she was a star. No one knew anything about her personal life. That's interesting that they gave, they credited uh, Christopher Plummer's character with her own, He they, they said he crafted a mystique for her. And I'm like, did he? Or did she just kind of give up? Like she didn't want to be social and that's why she had this mystique. Was it wrongly credited to Christopher Plummer? I mean, maybe it was just her like... Yeah, because remember her her friend, um, Miss Roberts, says that, well, uh, yeah, when she was younger, she was very lively and full of fun. She was strong. 
And then when she was older, she retreated inside herself and seemed empty. That's post-Richard. She was like that for decades. Honestly, that sounds exhausting to me, to be hanging on to something so tightly that you can't move on. I can't imagine that either. But then I was also thinking this time, what do you think she saw? Because that probably deeply affected her too. Because we only see it from the perspective of his point of view, right? We see him being dragged through time. I'm like, what the hell did she see? Because that might have messed with her for a long time as well. Did she watch him vanish? Like, what does that look like? What is that? Did it look like he got hooked and yanked away? Or did he just like fade out? I noticed this time that the language she uses when she's on stage giving that improvised monologue, when she's like directing this love speech to him and her play and everyone on stage is freaking out. She uses the word fade. The man of my dreams has almost faded now. That's those, that's the sentence she used. And I went, oh my God. The man of my dreams is almost faded now. That's going to happen later. Like in the end of the speech, she's like, but I see him and I love him. So you're like, oh, how romantic. But then later on, he literally fades from her view. So it's foreshadowing. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, she, and that could have been really dramatic. Traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy crap. What just happened? Who is this guy? Was he a demon? <laughs> he just vanished in front of me. That's I was like, that's probably why she was so deeply affected. But you're right. I was thinking to be affected for so long for your whole life to never heal. That's hard. But she also gives in the path because it's like she's looking for explanations, too. So she's the one that finds the time travel through hypnosis book and probably pieces things together um, and puts everything into place for him. And she's the one who says, come back to me. She's figured it out and she's planted the idea in his head. So she's clear. And maybe she's had a conversation with Christopher Plummer about it. But, ooh, wait, how could she? Because here's my other question about time travel. Do the thoughts in your head take you back to the present? Because if, like, items from the future take you back, how can, if, what if you accidentally think about the future? Do you get sucked back? Because I would think about the future. That would be, that would be a very delicate trigger mechanism, wouldn't it? If that was all it took? Like, holy shit. Because she could ask Christopher Plummer for help if he was a time traveler. But then if he talked about the future, that might take him out of the the past say in the scene where he meets arthur down in the lobby like he and he the ball bounces his way and he if would it be just as simple a thought as oh hey i had a ball like this when i was a kid mm-hmm. he was a kid in the future yeah so would that be an like i don't know i mean that that's what be, i was thinking this time <laughs> that's crazy this is a delicate balance this hypnosis time travel that would be hard um but i did want to bring up the foreshadowing because there was so much foreshadowing i was looking at this time and i was really digging it like so for example the coins obviously he goes back into the future because of a coin from the 70s in his pocket that he carelessly forgot to remove because of an earlier scene when he's putting the coins into his pocket. And then he goes, wait, I can't take these to the past. They're in the future. And you're like, oh, be more careful. Make sure all of them are out. You're not listening to me. Ah. So he does, he does that. But what I noticed also this time is that there's a shot when he's going to, like he's running his errands for going back into the past. And he walks into a store and the camera is on the other side of the glass and it zooms in to him inside, but it focuses on the word coin on the outside. And I was like, they're telling us about the coin. Dun, dun, dun. And then on his desk in Chicago, in his office, there's a plaque that faces out to camera that reads, what you think becomes your world. So that is a foreshadowing thing that I was digging. I remember seeing that. Is that the name of a, sh- a play he wrote? It was, he was sitting at his desk with his typewriter and it was faced out to the camera, this plaque. But I did love the detail of the, at the very first scene, 
all he says something to his cast members like oh you signed this and he's talking about the program that they all signed for his very first play and then when they show us his chicago office it's framed on the wall and you're like oh he's a sentimental man he cares about things like that plus look he's successful now too yeah um i just wrote down all of the details because there were so many details and i was kind of obsessed with them so i'm gonna i'm gonna just read you some of the details if i can read them but we've already talked about a lot of them like the one i just said Ooh, okay a silly detail I noticed this time is when he is driving to the Grand Hotel in his fancy, adorable car. Um, he drives one way, reverses, and then goes, huh, the Grand Hotel, and then pulls into the Grand Hotel. You can really visibly see him as an actor. Uh, he's reversing the car himself. You can see him staring at his mark and like stopping at the mark and going like, okay. And that cracks me up because if I was an actor doing that, I'd probably do the same thing. Like, okay, I'm backing into frame. Okay, I'm here. It's just really funny. So check it out if you see it. I mean, I find driving in reverse a bit stressful. So, you know, I just wanted to point that out because his face is totally different in the next frame. It's like, I'm an actor. I'm discovering something. Wow, look at this. But in the frame right before that, when he's driving backwards, he's like, did I get it? I did. Okay, good. So check that out. And scene. I also love when he comes back in time, one- you will notice it was stressing me out that like he made this whole big deal about like, I got to put all the things from the future away. Yet he's like laying on this bed that has that Paisley print and that has the two like modern lights. So I'm like, why do those things count as not from the past? But as a viewer, you're watching him and he's on that like Paisley bedspread and you're like, how is this going to work? How is he going to end up in the past with a 1970s bedspread? And then when he wakes up, the same Paisley print is on a pillow from the 1900s. And you're like, okay, that's really cool. So that's one. And then two, when he wakes up, the woman, Maud, which you kind of think Maud and Rolo are going to show up again and they only do at dinner and then they're gone forever, but they're such a little delightful couple, taste of the past. She's humming, You Made Me Love You, which is a song from that era and time, but is also what's happening in the story. Elise made him love her. He didn't want to do it. Um, so I was like, <laughs> ooh, I love that. That's a cool detail. Um and then, uh, oh, I loved the cue box guy. So they, there is an acting troupe that is performing a play that does not look like a very good play. And Elise is lovely, you know, like she's doing her best to be natural in this old timey play that's not very good. Um, but there's a guy that they have in the cue box who steals two scenes just by being silly, just with his facial expressions. And I really like that they chose to focus on him. Wait, so can we talk about the play that they're doing? The play that we see her doing, and it's not a real play and it's not a real author, which makes sense. I mean, if they had used a real play, they would have had to pay rights. Um, also, it wasn't very good. And no one wants to be <laughs> like, hey, isn't this work bad? Because I know like in the 1860s, acting was not realistic. Like you would like go to your mark strike a pose and declare all of your dialogue like there was nothing naturalistic or realistic about it at all and I'm wondering like I wondered if you knew like when did we when was the transition to more nuanced natural realistic acting it, when you go to theater art school there's a lot of emphasis on the group theater in like 30s, 40s, 50s. And so for me, like Stanislavski is the shift into natural acting. He was from earlier. And then that makes its way over to America because, you know, that was in Russia. That makes its way over to America. And that becomes like group theater. Um, but it's basically Stanislavski is the answer to that. <laughs> he was the first person that got acting natural going. Yeah, because during the rehearsal that we see a tiny sliver of, it seemed like the actors were doing that very like declarative 
you shan't marry her. Yes, I shall. You know, <laughs> when you had your character stereotypes too. So it was like, this is the character that acts like this and does this. You're playing this type of character. And then we can see from Elise that she's different from them. They did that on purpose, I think. I am almost like they made her a little too natural because when she's delivering that heartfelt speech, you wouldn't even be able to hear her if she really was on a stage. But uh, she's clearly different than the other actors on the stage and clearly is more natural in her delivery. So I think that's like just the point they were trying to express that totally came across. You'd see why she would become a big star. So apparently when they shot that first, there was technical difficulties. So they had to reshoot it. That bit where she does the, the man of my dreams. So by the time they got around to reshooting it, Christopher Reeve had already wrapped. So she delivered it to the author of the original book, Richard Matheson, who sat alone in the audience. There was all the extras were gone because they really just needed the shot of her, you know, on stage. So she delivered this monologue to him and he was so moved by it. He ended up like, he was like, I got to go. And he went back to his wife. Oh, what a what a wonderful gift that must have been for him. Should we talk about the author, Richard Matheson? Yeah. Richard Matheson is a big time sci-fi supernatural writer. Like that, those are the themes that are kind of running through a lot of his work. He wrote many, many books that were turned in, turned into uh films. Like he wrote Omega Man, which later became I Am Legend, which has been filmed a couple times. He did this. Um, he did uh What Dreams May Come, which uh, Robin Williams was in, but he got his start as a TV writer. Um, and he wrote like a dozen, over a dozen episodes of the original Twilight Zone, including the uh, infamous Nightmare at 20,000 Feet episode, aka the episode where William Shatner freaks out because he's on a plane and there's a creature out on the wing of the plane. Can anyone see it? <laughs> it's a very good episode. Total classic. Richard Matheson wrote that episode. He also wrote this episode called Third from the Sun. I have to add this because I'm a huge Star Trek fan. He also wrote one episode of Star Trek. It's called The Enemy Within. And in this episode, the transporter malfunctions and Captain Kirk gets split into two people. All of his good qualities are in one person and all of his bad qualities are in the other. And you can tell it's evil Kirk because he has eyeliner. That's so interesting, though, that this person who's like so into sci-fi and all of these things can write this gorgeous, this like sci-fi love story. Yeah, the original book that this is based on does have a lot more of the like mechanics and the theory behind time travel. Like the way it's written, it's it's supposed to be like a transcribed audio diary. Like Richard has a little microphone and he's recording his thoughts and onto this tape. So it's very like direct and terse and very spare writing. Um, so he does all, when he finds out about Elise McKenna, he does all this research on her. And then when he decides he wants to go back in time and meet her, then there's all this stuff about, you know, what is time travel? Is it possible? Theories about history and time. And is it linear? Like, so it does get a little bit into like the hard science sci-fi arena, definitely. I feel like they included just enough for the film though. Because it's like, Everything that's there is necessary. There's nothing that's too extra. We're not going to question it because it's time travel. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I'm okay not having all the answers because I buy into their love story. Also, not that I'm necessarily a fan, but General Colin Powell, this was his favorite film. So even though like critics panned it for being sentimental and melodramatic, 
people like Colin Powell loved it too. So, you know, you can be a four-star general and love this film. It's totally allowed. It's gorgeous and beautiful and we're allowed to love it. Yeah. Um, the costumes were done by Jean-Pierre Dorléac. Dorléac? I don't know how to pronounce it. It's French. That's right. Close enough. He was nominated for an Oscar for this. And apparently he completely ignored the budget. He was given a budget and he said, no. And he bought what he wanted. And thank goodness, because everyone looks amazing. Jane Seymour's costumes are stunning. She looks gorgeous in this, but also Christopher Plummer's costumes and all of the 1900s people's costumes. Everybody looks great. And Christopher Reeves' costume looks ridiculous, which it's supposed to. Also, his tan suit was the same color as the trees. And I was like, did they do that on purpose? I think they did. Because she liked looking at trees. And then she looks over and there he is. He's like the trees. So I was like, okay, I I get it. And then uh, we mentioned the music earlier was by John Barry. Um, and then Rachmaninoff's theme is what all of that was based on. So, um, but I do want to talk about, I'll, I'll finish my details really quick. So halftime of details is over. I'm back on details. Um, a very silly detail that I also liked is when they're at the restaurant, they show him walking through the restaurant to get to Elise and they cut to a family that is all eating their soup synchronously at the same time for no reason and i was like even more than the time travel this is the most ridiculous thing in this film like i buy the time travel (laughs) i do not buy this family eating soup at the same time no no um so i love that one of my favorite things about this particular viewing was um so when richard and elise meet for their gorgeous 1 p.m stroll and it becomes a 1900s montage it's a smorgasbord of what people in the 1910s did for leisure so you've got everything you've got a boxer preparing for the fight in the background you've got a little boy playing you've got painting you've got boating you've got a car on the grass for no reason i was like oh god i love all the 1910s leisure they fit in here oh he's eating nuts Just like, he's like, let me buy this bag of nuts. So yes, great 1910s leisure, totally dug it. I loved the shot of um, the upside down, like we're inside of the old fashioned camera uh, where we start the shot inside the camera and then pull out and see Christopher Plummer in real life. He's looking Mm. at them from the grass. That shot I was obsessed with. I kept rewinding it because I thought it was so cool. So people at home, look at that shot. You start off literally inside a 1910s camera and end up looking at Christopher Plummer in real life on a scene. It's great. Oh, and then, uh, so here's the thing. Christopher Reeve spends the night in a barnyard tied up next to a horse and he's probably very smelly. And immediately he gets loose and he feels like he's missed Elise. They've moved on to their next destination as an acting company, but it is revealed in a gorgeous shot, by the way, where she's like far away walking from behind a tree and he's up close to the camera and he's all sad and she's far away and she sees him and she's like, Richard. And then he runs down the steps to meet her and she runs up the steps to meet him and they embrace and it's beautiful. And I'm like, oh my God, he's still dirty and has hail over him. And it was in a barnyard overnight. And then they immediately <laughs> go sleep together. And I'm like, he must've smelled so bad. That was what I was thinking at first. I was like, he probably smelled terrible. He hasn't showered in several days. He was just in the barn, like all of those things things made me think he smelled terrible. And then they're, you know, the next day they're eating chicken. Their last kiss as a couple is a chicken kiss. They both (laughs) have chicken in their mouth and they kiss. And I'm like, that's it. That's your last kiss of all time. And it was chicken. So those (laughs) those were the I can't believe um, those are the details you latched on to. Yeah, I was like, this is what we're noticing. Because anyone could notice all of the fancy details. You oh can read gosh. books about them. 
but no one else is going to tell you about the chicken kiss people at home and you're welcome. So, so you brought up the one shot of him, like him, he's on one side of the screen and close up and then she's way off in the distance on the other side of the screen. So that, that shots like that happen in a couple spots and those are done with special camera lenses. It's a split focus diopter lens. Um, It allows you like the lens is literally split in half and it allows you to have items or people at different depths but they'll all be in they'll all be in focus no matter where they are it's used a lot in all the president's men like there's several shots of robert redford's on one side of the screen and he's in focus and then on the other side of the screen you see the rest of the newsroom and that's all in focus too so we can talk about the other huge difference between uh the film and the book let's do it what's the huge difference between the film and the book sarah so the two big big differences between the book and the movie of somewhere in time one being the song is different right it's not it's Mahler not Rachmaninoff the other big difference is that at the very beginning of the novel we find out that Richard has a brain tumor and he has been given only four to six months to live he talks about how he had been having these headaches and then they'd been going on for a long time. So we finally saw a doctor, he finds out he has a tumor and it's going to kill him. So he kind of like, is like, you know, screw everything. I'm about to die. I, you know, I don't care about anything anymore. And he's a screenwriter. He lives in Los Angeles or near Los Angeles. He flips a coin to decide whether he's going to drive North or South. And then he gets South. So he starts driving towards San Diego and he stops at the Coronado Hotel. And that's where the same thing that happens in the in the movie. He finds out a, about Elise, does all this research, blah, 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 blah. So when he comes back at the end, when he's yanked out of, ni- or in the book, it's 1896 he goes back to. So when he's yanked out of the past and brought back into the 1970s, you know, the same thing happens. He's he's like despairing and he ends up he ends up dying. But in the book, it's not clear it's left you know kind of up in the air did he actually go back in time or was it all a delusion brought on by the brain tumor oh god that's tragic i think he went back in time okay well wait is it tragic though because even if he did have a brain tumor to i guess experience something so lovely because he's he's been given a deadline you are going to die this tumor is going to kill you in four to six months and so he's thinking about all these things in the very beginning like he says that how he's never really been meaningfully in love, never had a really deep, meaningful relationship um, that ha- that's never happened for him. And so, I mean, if his brain created this, if it is all a delusion, if he, I mean, it was still, it was fulfilling something that he hadn't had yeah. before, experienced before, before the brain tumor killed him. I much prefer this rosier version of events yeah there is kind of like something dark about like oh did it was it real or was it just all in his head oh yeah thank you for sharing that with us because i do think that adds depth to it and maybe christopher reeve was informed by that too in his performance i wonder if there's an early draft of the screenplay where they did include the brain tumor framing device of it all i don't know by the way titanic 100 stole their ending from this 100 um because like the ending of them meeting in death and them meeting as their most joyful selves in death like the way that they wanted to see each other you know the way they remembered each other i think is really it's what turns this film from being so depressing into very sweet they ended on such a note where 
it's maybe not as tragic as if he had just been stuck in the present and completely depressed. It put a final period on it. With the whole brain tumor thing, it does kind of make the story about, you know, because like I said at the beginning, he's received this deadline and he just stops caring about everything. Like he's he says, like, I'm going to stop making my mortgage payments. I'm going to stop, you know, doing this stuff, paying my bills because who cares anymore? Right. I'm going to be I'm going to be dead in a couple of months. So I don't really care. I don't give a crap about anything. And so but when he finds when he sees Elise's picture at the Coronado Hotel, suddenly he has like just like in the movie, he gets sucked into like, who is this woman? What did she do? What was she like? And doing all this research and she becomes the girl of his dreams. And and there is something about, I don't know, maybe finding purpose in your life or something to live for but ultimately the the tumor still gets him in the end but the way the movie plays out I almost feel like it's an extended metaphor about creation and inspiration because when we see after they do the jump forward to you know eight years later and it's set 1979 1980 he's like he's sitting in front of his typewriter and he's frustrated and he he rips the page out and he balls it up you know he's got a writer's block yeah he's blocked he's stuck his creative juices are not flowing he also just had a breakup he's got this deadline for this play he has to write and he needs inspiration and so he aims to get that from a change in scenery it sounds like he was driving to where his college was probably where he last felt like really fruitful also he was driving north in this one so it's funny that in the book he went south in this the way he was driving on lakeshore drive with the buildings behind him i was like oh you're going north he's trying to get that thing back his creativity Elise as a person, her, I feel like her character is pretty lightly sketched. I mean, she is an object of inspiration. We don't even meet her up till 45 minutes in. I think because of the way she stands up for herself in the scene with Christopher Plummer and the scene where we see her acting, we see that there's more to her. But I, you're right. I do wish she was flushed out a little more. She has sparked something in him, right? I mean, he like does all that frenzied research and he figures out how to travel through time for her. You know, he has a project. He's excited about something again. He's not stuck anymore he's excited for the future Ooh, although something else that i was really bummed about this time was so everyone might remember earlier on i talked about how jane seymour and christopher reeve were in love they fell in love during this movie he found out his ex-girlfriend was pregnant and she finds out the day they're shooting the scene her line to him is oh no i thought for a second you might have a secret family a wife and a child or something and you're like oh god her having to say that on that day yeah. oh man but also the other line like she says you're gonna marry me right yeah right or something like that something that and he says sure by the way you know in 1912 there was still an expectation that you were not doing the nasty until you put a ring on it but what i think about that moment is like that's the only time he's unromantic she's like you're gonna marry me right and he's laughing and he's like sorry it was just really funny the way you said that sure and you're like wait can you be just a teeny bit more romantic Now we are heading into the modern lens portion of this podcast. Like what did not hold up? I mean, when they have that big romantic kiss, he like steps towards her and she says no. And I'm like, you know, we live in a world now where I think, I feel like people are realizing, oh, wait, no does not mean yes. No never means yes. No means no. Consent is important. She says no twice, I think, actually. She does. (laughs) She says no, but she doesn't stop him. But also he doesn't stop. He keeps on moving in towards her. So it's like, that's a little bit like, hmm, consent is important, dude. I agree. 
But I also think that because of the slowness of that moment too, because she says no, and you're like, oh, I don't, I'm uncomfortable. My modern self is uncomfortable. But he moves so slowly in to kiss her and she kisses him back. So that's the part yeah. where you're like, okay, you are consenting. You didn't give verbal consent, but I don't know. You're right. Nowadays, it's, it doesn't play it's very tough. well. It's a tough moment. Um, But then also I was noticing like there was one person of color in this film <laughs> and they were the librarian. And I was like, okay, so at least in the past, I get like that we're putting this rosy color lens on the past. And I get that that's not totally cool because the past wasn't great for everyone. It was great for like rich white men. So sorry, rich straight white men. So it's annoying sometimes when we put the rosy filter on the past when we're like, weren't things better back then? Because no, they weren't for everybody. But um, I so I do like want to mention that to me, that was a modern lens thing. But I liked that the like one person of color that was in the film was in a an intelligent intellectual position and they weren't playing a stereotype. So I was like, at least she was a that. librarian. And also she was every every straight woman with a pulse because he totally uses his pretty privilege to get stuff from her. He's like, can you pull these books for me from the back? And she's like, well, we're about to close. And he's like, he just like bats his eyelashes at her. It's like, yeah, Christopher Reeve, you can. Yeah, you, you can got it. Yeah, whatever you want. <laughs> that that woman, that actress, she yeah. was all of us. Yeah, it made so much sense. And his pretty privilege doesn't totally work in the past. He like tries to use it a little bit in the past and it's not totally working for him. And it's like, ha ha ha. Because I think he tries to use it on Jane Seymour right away. And she's like, hey, I require more than your pretty face. Have you seen my own pretty face? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, the consent thing was bothersome and just you know, glorifying the past also bothersome, but in general, like, I don't know, it, it could have been way worse. <laughs> she would have come of age during the 1900s, like during the Victorian era. He came of age during the 1960s. So coming from two very different worlds, you know, as far as consent and sexuality and all that goes. Well, and there's a scene where he tries to kiss her on the gazebo and to him, that's so normal because he's from the seventies, but in her time, like you can't just kiss somebody. You can't just that we can gently hold hands for a short time. Like that's her era. <laughs> They're having a moment and he's like, this feels like, we're, you know, we're connecting. This is a good moment for a kiss. We're alone in a beautiful gazebo. That's totally not where her mind is. I think her mind is there. I think she's afraid. I think she's afraid of him because she has what Christopher Plummer said in her head where she's like, okay, I know a man's going to come and either and do something. He's going to change me. And the word again, Christopher Plummer used was destroy. So you're like, okay. So she's afraid of whoever it is. And he keeps being like, don't be afraid of me. And um, I don't know. I think she's trepidatious plus the expectations of behavior in the past where he's not really following that. He's being very forward and she might be a little bit used to that as an actress having to potentially kiss people on stage, but that doesn't mean she's comfortable with it as her own self in real life. And it would not have been the societal norms. This is an era when pregnant ladies didn't go in public. Like you were just expected to be locked up in the house until you weren't showing anymore. So yeah, there's no way that they could have kissed in public and it would have been okay. On day one of knowing each other. Yeah, their little afternoon date started at 1 p.m., which was like only two hours ago. I mean, it felt longer because it was a montage, but still. It was it was a lifetime of love in one short afternoon. Also from Modern Lens, this is a total sidestep, but the lady with the pink hair, I was like, okay, you'd see that today. There's an actress that has a pink wig. She just wears it all the time. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. I like it. Oh, yeah, the French lady. The French lady. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I wonder if that's supposed to be a wig or if they like had hair dye that was that bright shade. I don't know. I don't know what the cool. 
history of wigs and hair is. She's the one that comments on his suit and how it's so old. She's like, I haven't <laughs> seen a suit like that in 10 years. I gotta tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. Um, so that's great. And then uh the oh, and the 80s makeup, how like no matter what, if you make a film about the past, the trends of your day are going to seep in no matter what you do. It's just you oh, can't yeah. help it a little bit. So I do love seeing like the slight 80s makeup in our 1900s world. We forgot to mention the fan club. Somewhere in Time is famous for having one of the biggest, most dedicated fan clubs in like the history of cinema. The group is called Insight, International Network of Somewhere in Time Enthusiasts. Oh my God, I love it. It is currently run by a woman who was an extra on the film. So she's actually like interacted with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour several times. They have uh, a newsletter that gets published three or four times a year. They have get-togethers. I think they're they're the group that arranges the annual somewhere in time shindig that happens at the Grand Hotel every year, still to this year. They do that. I mean, I'm sure it got interrupted by COVID, but they're the ones who spearheaded Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour getting stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, They helped raise a lot of money for spinal cord injury research after Reeve's accident. Like they're, they're an amazing network. I love that. They do a lot. They are so passionate about the film. They have a website. I think Somewhere in Time might be one of the most documented films ever, just because they are so good about digging up tiny details about how the movie was made and this happened and like, yeah, interviewing people who are involved in the making of the film and the island and the hotel and the the novel yeah all that stuff they don't like to be called a fan club i think they prefer the term uh, appreciation society i really am a fan of this appreciation society and i think that they're doing a great job and i i'm really glad you brought this to our attention sarah that's where i i found their website and i was looking at some of the articles on there so that's some of my information came from came from there oh i love that all right i will move us into the double feature portion of this show If you liked this film, what are some films like it to check out? Well, there's nothing really like it. It's so romantic and beautiful. Um, But I was thinking of people that were like kept apart, uh, but still had like these deep romances. So some films that I thought of, one of them obviously is Titanic. I mean, an epic love story. They are separated. They reunited death. I mean, spoiler alert, but it's Titanic for God's sake. You should know that. Bridges of Madison County came up for me. I was like, ooh, that would be a good pairing with this. It's like very lush and gorgeous looking. Heaven Can Wait, the not the 40s, like, here comes Mr. Jordan version. I want me some, like, 1970s Warren Beatty, Heaven Can Wait. Yes. Oh. I feel like that's a good pairing with this one. Um, I also wrote Room with a View, the Helena Bottom Carter from the 80s one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I wrote one of your favorites, The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. So <gasps> I was like, hey, have you ever fallen in love with a ghost? Hey, remember that one time there was a ghost and you fell in love (laughs) but like that kept you apart because he he was a ghost you know he was a ghost he was dead (laughs) um and i wrote about time because that's a time travel love story oh wait is the one with uh the one that the redheaded guy yeah yeah yeah. okay okay him and um and rachel mcadams yeah. And so they fall in love and he can like travel through time and relive his days and stuff. And I was like, okay, time travel love story. And it's better than Time Traveler's Wife. So that's why oh, I picked yeah. that one. No, yeah. Do not watch the movie, but the book is good. I read the book in college. The Time Traveler's Wife is a is a very good book. I, I got to say, as far as double feature goes, I'm feeling Bridges of Madison County. 
I think that would be like a, a pretty solid pairing, the two of those, because Bridges of Madison County is it's from uh, like 10 years later, like early mid 90s is when that 95. 95. OK, yeah. So like 15 years later. But it has <laughs> the same it, it the way that movie is photographed. It's very aware of the space that it's in, you know, the beautiful covered bridges, but also like the landscape that, that Iowa that summer you know the two of them together and just like Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep are just like fire and you had me at Meryl Streep let's be real you had me at Meryl that would be a magical pairing Bridges of Madison County and Somewhere in Time yeah I'm down I wrote down Kate and Leopold even though I was never obsessed with that but Meg Ryan's at it and you'd mentioned she's in the film. I mean yeah the Meg Ryan link there I will always recommend Sleepless in Seattle for Valentine's Day wherever you are in the world Sleepless in Seattle is one of the best romantic comedies ever made and they are kept apart sort of and yes I love it so I recommend that and then also just for Christopher Reeve I said earlier Death Trap and uh Noises Off I stand by those for Miss Jane Seymour who we did not really talk about today but we love her um, grew up in London. She was in Live or Let Die. She was in a Bond film, and um, she was very famous for playing Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman, oh, fabulous yeah. series. But if you want to watch some of those, I would recommend it, especially the one where she gets married to Sully, and they like have their honeymoon on a train. Oh, it's so romantic! That's oh a great gosh. episode, Doctor Quinn. Sully, Sully was like my first childhood crush. No, second, the first childhood crush was Commander Riker from Star Trek. Number two. <laughs> Number two was Sully from Dr. Quinn. And check out the Jane Seymour interview on TCM. So those are my double features. And I'm really, I feel really validated. Thank you, Sarah, for validating my double feature. Oh, absolutely. No, those are great. Um, And thank you for being here. This was absolutely love. I love talking about this movie with you. Thank you for having me and for picking this film because what a, what a delight. What a delight and happy Valentine's to everybody. Enjoy your romantic day with this movie. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Sarah Royce. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.